0: Mark chapter 2. Continuing our series, Binge Watching Jesus, and I don't know about you, but this series has been really good for my soul. I have needed to sit and binge watch Jesus and be reminded again of how merciful he is, and how compassionate, and how kind, and loving, and gentle, and good. He is to sinners like us. I never get tired of hearing Jesus say these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that. I never get tired of hearing that. In fact, it was our call to worship. It was our scripture reading. I just read it, and I'm going to end our sermon with that verse. I love it so much. In fact, Friday night, maybe it was Saturday morning, I woke up in the middle of the night, and thoughts just came flooding in, and I suspect you're the same way. You wake up, and things that are weighty and heavy just rush in like a tidal wave. And so just thoughts were coming in, and God in his goodness and mercy just brought this verse into my mind because was, I was thinking about it all week, and just came in and I just kind of rehearsed it in my head. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's so good; I never tire of hearing Jesus say those words to me. I'm going to move this mic because you guys know I fall my arms when I preach, so I would probably knock that over. What Jesus will remind us of today in these verses is something that I've told you before. In fact, it was the big idea of the very first sermon that I ever preached here at Grace and that I've mentioned several times since then. And it's this, focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. Just like in Jesus' day, believers have a tendency to obsess over their performance, We have a tendency to focus on what we are doing or what we aren't doing. Am am I praying enough? Did I read enough of the Bible today? Am I serving as much as I could? Did I give enough money in the offering? We have a tendency to focus and obsess on what we are doing in the Christian life or what we aren't doing in the Christian life. And when we do this, We do not enjoy the Lord. We don't enjoy him. When we obsess over our behavior, what we do that's either good or bad, we simply don't enjoy Jesus. When we obsess over our behavior, whether good or bad, we either end up despairing over our lack of obedience, despairing over our lack of commitment, or if we're doing pretty good in our eyes, then we begin to fill up with pride. It feels pretty good, doesn't it? When it's the end of January and you've read three chapters a day, you're feeling pretty good, aren't you? And that pride can and will lead us to look down on others. When we obsess over our spiritual lives, obsess over our behavior, whether good or bad, it always leads to either despair or pride. Despair because we're not measuring up. Our pride because we think we are. And Jesus is going to confront this very thing in our passage today. Jesus wants to teach us that our focus is to be on our Savior and not on our behavior. Look at verse 18 of Mark chapter 2 and hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus is approached... By a group of people who question him as to why his disciples are not fasting because John's disciples are fasting and the disciples of the Pharisees, including the Pharisees, are also fasting. So they want to know why the disciples of Jesus are breaking with cultural norms and are not fasting. But what we need to understand as we make our way through Mark's gospel and as we look at this passage today, we need to understand just how controlling the Pharisees were. They are in the background of this question, although they are not posing the question. The Pharisees were the spiritual pace setters in Israel and they fasted every Monday and every Thursday and so they expected everybody else to fast every Monday and every Thursday. So when Jesus and the disciples are not fasting according to the cultural norms that the Pharisees put in place, people begin to wonder why. They want to know why Jesus is breaking away from the cultural norms that were cemented into Israelite society. And as you can guess, the Pharisees are not going to be excited about some new rabbi that does not encourage his disciples to fast as they have said. They're not going to like this new guy who is breaking away from tradition, how we've always done it. Now, it's just another manic Monday or Thursday in Israel, and people notice that Jesus and his disciples are hanging out at Chick-fil-A, and they are enjoying some waffle fries. And this group approaches their table and asks them, why don't y'all fast? Why are y'all eating waffle fries on a Thursday? And Jesus replied, Because it's party time. Jesus actually answered them by asking a question. I love that about Jesus. He wants them to think. He wants them to come up with the answer as they logically think through what he is saying. And so Jesus asked them about what happens at a wedding. He says, basically, do people fast, go without food, water, water? At a wedding? Do people eat the catered meal from the far western at a wedding or do they fast? And the answer, of course, is that people eat, people party at a wedding because that's appropriate. When you go to a wedding, it's a happy time. You dance, you party, you enjoy the festivities. What you don't do is fast. I mean, after all, it's a free meal, right? And this is where knowing the Jewish culture at the time is helpful. Weddings were a big deal back then. They would last for days, usually about seven days. So it was a seven-day party. And guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. So a wedding was seven days and six nights in Flavortown. It was a celebration. A party. There was an abundance of food and wine and singing and dancing and fun in the house and fun out in the streets and fun in the bounce houses out in the streets. It was like a block party. The music was pumping and bounce houses were bouncing and you didn't want to bounce out of there early. You came to enjoy the celebration. And it lasted several days. And while the groom was there, or the bride for that matter, you partied because you were happy for them. You celebrated their presence by eating and drinking and dancing and having a good time. What you didn't do is go sit in the corner and fast and refuse to eat. That would be out of place. That would be unacceptable. And that's Jesus's point about why his posse doesn't fast. They will fast, he says in verse 20, after he dies on the cross, after he is resurrected, taken into heaven, after he ascends and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He says they will fast on that day. But now Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. It's time to party. Jesus is here. He is with his disciples. This is not a time to fast. It's a time to celebrate, a time to dance, a time to party, a time to Enjoy the Lord. Let me ask you, would you fast at a Super Bowl party? Next week, if you're planning on throwing or attending a Super Bowl party, are you planning on fasting? Would you turn down chips and queso? Would you refuse a Dr. Pepper? Of course not, especially if you're a Texan, because you spell party in Texas this way, chips and queso and Dr. Pepper. Nobody in their right mind fasts during a Super Bowl party because it's a time to what? To celebrate. A time to celebrate the defeat of the New England Patriots, which I'm praying happens next Sunday. I might even pray and fast that that happens. I hate the Patriots. I love Jesus, and I hate the Patriots. That's my life in a summary. I don't love Jesus as much as I should, and I probably hate the patriots more than I should. Maybe not that last part. But in Jesus' day, fasting became a guide by which the Pharisees judged people and puffed themselves up. And that's exactly what happens when you and I judge other people. We tear them down, and we puff ourselves up. And so the Pharisees took this man-made rule that they come up that they came up with fasting on Mondays and Thursdays and if you didn't do that then they would judge you and look down upon you. Now the Old Testament law only required fasting once a year on the day of atonement. Of course you could fast anytime you wanted to, but it was only required by God's law once a year on the day of atonement. But the Pharisees came up with all these other traditions that they elevated to the place of God's law. They had all kinds of rules and regulations that they expected everyone else to keep. They actually elevated their traditions right next to God's law so that if you broke their rules, you broke their traditions, you were, in their eyes, breaking God's law. And they decided, in their infinite wisdom, that everybody should fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And so you'd be at In-N-Out for lunch on a Monday or a Thursday, and you would be taking a bite of your double-double, and just as you were taking a bite of that delicious, God-given blessing, a Pharisee would walk by and see you and give you that look. And then he would walk away totally puffed up and feeling good about himself because he was so spiritual. But deep down inside, he couldn't wait until midnight because In-N-Out is open at midnight. So that when the clock struck 12 and it was now officially Tuesday, he would hightail it to in and out so he could enjoy a double-double. The Pharisees basically walked around with scorecards. They would have agreed with the Apostle Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23. They would agree with that. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But that didn't stop them from comparing distances. They were always checking on people, always looking for fruit in people's lives. They were the original fruit police. And we become like them. We become like the Pharisees when we begin to nitpick our brothers and sisters in Christ. We become like little kids who tattletale on each other. Understand this. God the Father is able to parent his children. He doesn't need our help. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.17, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God deals with each of his children individually. He judges, present tense, each believer and deals with each believer without input from his or her siblings. God doesn't need and God doesn't want tattletales in his family. He doesn't want us running around trying to be the police monitoring everybody's spiritual condition. We're not here to call each other out all the time. We're supposed to call on our Heavenly Father who judges impartially each person's deeds. We're supposed to conduct ourselves out of fear, not conduct others. We're supposed to watch over our own hearts, not sift through other people's hearts and motives as if we could actually see and determine someone else's heart motives. We can't, can we? But if we're honest, we'll all admit, that person did this because of this. I know they did that. I know what's in their heart. We've all done that, haven't we? We don't know people's hearts' motives. We don't know why people do what they do. Ray Ortland tweeted this last week. He said, A one another command I can't find in the New Testament. Humble one another. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to humble others by their righteousness. Always focusing on other people. Instead of dealing with their own sin. Instead of dealing with their own heart. Now, That doesn't mean, of course, that you turn a blind eye to how other people are living. It doesn't mean we as parents don't disciple and teach our children and correct them. It doesn't mean that if you have a close relationship with a brother or sister in Christ that you can't go to them and say, hey, man, I noticed this and talk through that. I'm not saying don't do that. It doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to how people are living. If someone is living in unrepentant sin, and by unrepentant sin, I mean they are hard-hearted, and they say something like this, I don't want to change. I know this is wrong. I know God's word says what I'm doing is sin, but I'm not giving it up, and I'm not changing. If someone is living like that, then of course we're called to intervene. We're called to go to them. We're called to help bring them back to Jesus. It's called church discipline. We're called to help them get restored to Jesus. But how many Christians try to be the fruit police, always running around trying to keep people in line? That's not grace. That's law. Grace connects you to a person, to Jesus, to a Redeemer, not to rules. Grace sets you free. It doesn't put you back in chains. Grace gives you wings so that you can fly. Grace is not a tattletale. Grace connects you to a redeemer, not to a list of rules. And that means that we don't have to look at others to see if they're staying in line because our focus is supposed to be on Jesus. We're not supposed to focus on what our brothers and sisters in the family are up to, what they are doing or not doing. So understand this, grace frees you to quit being a tattletale. Grace frees you to quit being holier than thou. Grace frees you to quit trying to be a kingdom monitor. Grace frees you to quit being a part of the fruit police. And Steve Brown is very helpful here. He says this, if you use the law to judge others, go ahead. But don't assume that your judgment mimics the judgment of God. The good news is that Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Religion has made us obsessive almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step and in line with the other soldiers. We know a dance would be more fun but we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. Making other people holy is God's job, not ours. Let me say that again. Making other people holy is God's job, not ours. Humbling others is not part of our job description. Convicting others is not our job. Humble one another is not in the Bible. Our focus is to be on Jesus. And I think Jesus would be okay with me tweaking our big idea for just a moment. Focus on your Savior, not on other people's behavior. Holiness and being sanctified and being set apart to God, being different, will never be a reality for us unless we care more about Jesus than holiness. Holiness will never be a reality for us unless we care more about Jesus than holiness. Unless we care more about Jesus than getting better. Care more about Jesus than seeing other people get better. Most of us just want to be holy so that we can feel better about ourselves and feel that we are better than others. Please let me say that again. Most of us just want to be holy so that we can one, feel better about ourselves, two, feel that we are better than others. That's the Pharisees. And so we fall into the trap of making sure we're staying in line and other people are staying in line. And so we've turned the Christian life into a march of soldiers. Ten hut, get in line, soldier. Ten hut, start marching, son. We've turned the Christian life into a march of soldiers. And it's supposed to be a dance. We're supposed to be free, grace. And grace is what makes us free. Grace, God's unmerited favor for rascals and rebels like us. That's what motivates obedience in the Christian life. Grace is what motivates holiness. Grace is what motivates us to think and act differently. Is the Christian life a life of war? Yes, we are in a battle. The Bible clearly paints that picture. We're a battle in a battle against our own sin and against the forces of evil in the spiritual world. I'm not denying that at all. That's part of it. Every day we have to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit and with the Word of God. That is part of it. But another part of the way that we do battle is by dancing. Part of the way that we do battle against sin and against the forces of evil is by enjoying the Lord, by enjoying Jesus, by enjoying God, by dancing, by partying, by being free, by really believing in the radical nature of grace. But for the Pharisees and religious leaders in Jesus' day, everybody was wrong. Everybody fell short of God's glory, but they didn't mind comparing distances. No one measured up to their standard, only they did. How convenient. And that's why these people asked Jesus about fasting here in Mark 2. The Pharisees had a grip on everyone. I think they're lurking in the background here. But I wouldn't say they probably put people up to go pose this question to Jesus. But please understand, Jesus is not against fasting in verses 19 through 20. He's not against fasting at all. After all, he fasted for 40 days. Right? If Jesus was anti fast, he would not have fasted for 40 days, right? Jesus is against fasting for the wrong reasons. Jesus is not against the spiritual disciplines. He's against doing them with the wrong motives, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They're doing them for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motives. And that means if you're having a quote-unquote quiet time, and you're doing it with the wrong motives? Like, if I don't do this in the morning, something bad's going to happen today. Jesus does not want that for you because you're not doing it in faith, not doing it because you just want to be with him, to enjoy him. As Romans 14.23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, sometimes we turn prayer and Bible reading into this thing that we believe that either makes Jesus dole out blessings on us or curses on us. And we think things like, if I read my Bible, Jesus will like me. He'll retweet me. And if I don't, he won't like my posts on Facebook. That's not grace. That's not Jesus. That's not the gospel. The Pharisees thought they could earn God's grace by fasting. They didn't fast because they wanted to obey God's word. They didn't fast because they wanted to get to know him more. They didn't fast because they wanted to kill sin in their lives. They did it to look good in the eyes of others and in their own eyes. It had nothing to do with God, even though it revolved around God. It was not done in a humble seeking of God. It wasn't, I'm fasting and depriving my body of food to demonstrate and remind myself just how desperate I am. I am going without food, which I desperately need, in order to remind myself that I desperately need God 10,000 times more. It wasn't that at all. It was all a show. But that's why you fast. You fast to remind yourself that your soul has a hunger that is deeper and stronger than your desire for food. You fast to be reminded of something that you and I always and continually forget. That we desperately need Jesus. That we need him more than food. And so fasting is saying to Jesus, this is how desperate I am. I want you. I need you more than I need food, Jesus. But that's not why the Pharisees did it. They did it to feel good about themselves and then in return look down upon other people. They were using this beautiful, albeit tough, spiritual discipline designed and given by God. Not to humbly draw near to Yahweh, but to promote and inflate their own egos. And as their stomach shrunk from lack of food, their egos got bigger. As their stomachs growled from being hungry, their own PR got louder and louder. It was all self-righteousness, self-reliance, pride to feel good about yourself. And in Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus condemning the Pharisees. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Here's what Jesus is saying to us today. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. Focus on the fact that he loves you and gave himself for you. Focus on the fact that he rejoices and sings over you. Focus on the fact that he is merciful and kind, compassionate and gentle and loving. Don't obsess over what you do or don't do. Focus on Jesus. Enjoy the Lord. Enjoy his presence. Enjoy communion with him and celebrate and laugh and dance and sing and obsess over what Jesus has already done for you through his life, death and resurrection as the second Adam. Focus on the fact that he gave you the righteousness that you need in order to be able to stand in God's presence. The Pharisees took a God thing, fasting, spiritual discipline. And they turned it into a look-at-me-everybody thing. And I had a roommate in college do this once. It started one morning at 6 a.m., and I heard the click of the lamp, and a little small light then filled the room. And I looked down from the top bunk where I slept and looked down below, and I saw him sitting at his desk, reading his Bible and praying. And then I went back to sleep. And then the next day it happened again. Click. And the light filled with room. And there he was reading and praying his Bible. And then the next day, click, light filled the room. There he was reading and praying. And then the next day he told me that his parents were coming into town. And then it hit me. He's doing his quiet times because his parents will ask him how his quiet times are going. And he wants to be able to say, they're going well, Mom. I get up at 6 and read my Bible and pray. And that's exactly what he was doing. It's exactly why he was doing it, because I asked him straight up, have you been getting up at six, because this is not normal, have you been getting up at six and having a quiet time so that when your parents ask if you've been having your quiet times, you can say yes, and he sheepishly admitted to it. Now, I give him credit for that because he was honest. He came clean. But that's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want your performance. He doesn't want you obsessing over your performance He wants you to rest in his finished work. He wants you to enjoy him. Read your Bible? Yes, absolutely. Read your Bible. Pray? Yes, absolutely. Pray fast? Yes, absolutely. Fast. And if you struggle to do these things like we all do, just be honest with Jesus. Tell him, I really don't want to read the Bible right now, but I know I need it. So please help me. Change my heart. Help me, Lord. Just be honest with Jesus. He can handle it. He already knows that you don't want to read your Bible when you don't want to read your Bible. Okay? You're not hiding that from him. You're not dilly-dallying around like I'm trying to stay busy. I'll get on Facebook and Instagram. He knows you're on there because you don't want to read the Bible. He knows that. Just be honest with him. And your soul needs it no matter what. Just pick it up and read. Even if you don't get the warm fuzzies. Even you know you get some great insight, just expose yourself to God's word and it has this effect over time. But just be honest and say, I don't want to read the Bible, Jesus. I would rather get on Instagram. He's okay with that. Just be clean. Come clean. Be honest. And sit down and read. Don't do the spiritual disciplines to be seen by others. Don't do it thinking you get extra points with God. And don't do it to inflate your spiritual ego. Do it because you love Jesus, because you want to be with him, and because you want to get to know him better. Do it because you want to enjoy the Lord. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior, because when we do the opposite of that, what we end up doing is we replace the gospel with our own versions of the gospel. We craft our own versions of of good news rules and laws just like the Pharisees did we do this by coming up with our own versions of things that we must do I did that this year I said I'm reading all the way through the Bible this year and I'm starting three chapters a day in this reading program and I got like four days in and missed a couple on my little thing I still read like a verse here or there but I, and then I was just like oh I'm a loser <laughs> I can't even do this Anybody else, does it resonate with you? It's not why we want to read the Bible, just so we can fill in three boxes, three check marks. The next day, three check marks. Even reading the Bible can become a Pharisee-like rule. Now, we should all be reading our Bibles, correct? Yes, it's God's Word. It's life. It's truth. This book is God's voice to us. Do you want to hear God speak to you? Read this book do you want to hear the audible voice of God you want to hear the audible voice of God read this book out loud or have somebody else read it to you or listen to it on audio you need to read your Bible you need God's word I need God's word but what we sometimes do is think that because we read it or because we don't read it then something will happen If we read the Bible, if we have a quote-unquote quiet time, then we think that God will bless us more, that he'll like us more. And if we don't have a quiet time in the morning, then we start thinking, I'll probably lose my job today, or get the flu, or be responsible for some earthquake that hits our state, all because I didn't read the Bible today. When we think that way, we demonstrate that we don't understand grace. When we think like that, we... We're telling ourselves we don't really don't understand grace. The following list I've read to you before is from Jerry Bridges' book Transforming Grace: Living Confidently in God's Unfailing Love. And if any of these resonate with you, it's a sign that you don't understand grace and you need to get recalibrated again. You know you don't understand God's grace when you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. Does that resonate with anyone? You just have this sense that God is always disappointed in you. that He's always frowning. He's always let down. He's like this grumpy dad. He's mad and you've let him down and you just can't do anything to please him. If that's how you view God, you do not understand grace. If you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him after you just failed him, you've done that one sin that you've done, a thousand times and repented of and turned from a thousand times and you just did it again and now you desperately need God to come through for you for something and you think, I just did that. I can't ask you for help here. If that's you, you don't understand grace. If you feel that you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice, you get up, you, you pray for two hours every morning. You read Leviticus and you enjoy it. And so you owe me God. I do so much for you, you owe me. You don't understand grace. God pays the hard worker who works nine to five the same amount as the guy that clocks in at 459 and clocks out at five. If you assume that you've you've sinned so many times that you've used up all your credit of forgiveness... That one sin that you've sinned 10,000 times, that you've repented of 10,000 times, that you're good at, that you do over and over, keep turning away from it, and you think, finally, I've finally used up all my credit with God. He can't forgive me now. If that's you, you don't understand grace. If you feel more confident before God, if you've been faithful with your quiet times and with prayer and with witnessing, You feel pretty good because I've been reading the Bible since January 1st, and I feel good with God. I've been witnessing. I've been faithful. I've been serving and giving. I feel more confident before God because of all that I've done. Then you don't understand grace. If you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes, you feel dirty. There's always this... Nagging, gnawing sense that you're dirty, the shame and guilt that's just always there, like a, a low hum in the background of your life. If you can't honestly say right now, I am blameless in God's eyes, then you don't understand grace. If you fear the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time, we've all done that, haven't we? We oversleep, we don't have time to pray and read God's word, and now we think, my whole day is going to be ruined. My whole day is going to be ruined probably lose my job, all because you didn't read your Bible, you don't understand grace. If you assume that you can do something to make Jesus love you more or less, you think you do things for him and therefore he loves you more, and you think because you mess up or don't do things, then his love for you begins to diminish, then you don't understand grace. Grace and religion are not compatible. Grace and religion. And all these man-made rules and traditions and other gospels that we create, God's grace is not compatible with those things. And grace and the Pharisees' man-made rules were not compatible either. And so Jesus ends by giving two short parables in our passage, explaining to these people how he is not compatible with all the traditions of the Pharisees. Look at verse 21. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's what Jesus is saying. He is the new patch He is the new wine. He cannot be added to the tradition of the Pharisees, which is exactly why in a few short verses into chapter 3, they are already going to plan to kill him. He's not playing by their man-made rules, and they don't like it. And so they start having meetings with people that they don't like, the Herodians, on how can we get together and kill this guy because he's not playing by the rules by saying that he is the new patch and the new wine, Jesus is also posing a question to those who questioned him and those who are listening. He was saying, Are you going to stay with business as usual with the Pharisees? Are you going to join the wedding celebration? We receive the new wine of the gospel or stay with man made systems? You can't put Jesus into the Pharisees' religion. He's not compatible with their system of self-righteousness, their system of do more and try harder religion. If you try to add the gospel to human effort, to a system of human effort, a system of human works, it will destroy the gospel, and therefore it will not be the gospel anymore. The Pharisees had a gospel of works. But our hope must be in Christ and in Christ alone, not what we do for him, but what he has done for us. Not what we do for him, but what he has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is telling us in Mark 2 that he has invited us to a dance. He has invited us to a wedding celebration. A big, long one. In fact, for Jesus, this is is so amazing. For Jesus, every day is his wedding day. That's what Puritan John Owen said. His heart is glad in us without sorrow. And every day while we live is his wedding day. The thoughts of communion with the saints were the joy of his heart from eternity. You know, the the wedding day bliss and excitement. I'm getting married. This is going to be awesome. That's Jesus every day. That's how Jesus feels towards you individually right now, Christian. I can't wait. I can't wait. His heart is glad in us, Grace. He is not disappointed with us. He's not disappointed because you haven't read your Bible since last Wednesday. He is not disappointed with you. He is glad in us, and every day is his wedding day because for all of eternity, there has been one all-consuming thought of the triune God, and it was this, to have communion with the people that I will redeem. We were the joy of his heart from all of eternity. Genesis 1, which I was doing a lot of thinking and reading on this week. Genesis 1 is not about science. Moses doesn't care about science. Moses doesn't care about evolution. Moses doesn't care about if it's a 24-hour day or not, day, age, year thing. Moses doesn't care about any of that stuff. It's not even on his radar Genesis 1 is about the triune God who from all of eternity has finally in real time on day one begun creating a world that he will then create his people with that they can enjoy him and enjoy his creation. Genesis 1 is about Jesus being with his people. It's not about science. It's not about evolution. It's not about none of that. You're supposed to read Genesis 1 and say, my God, the living God wants to be with me. That's what Genesis is about. That's a whole other sermon, sorry. Let that sink in. We were the joy of his heart from all eternity. And now which do you really want? Do you want to be a self-absorbed Pharisee, hearing your own voice brag about you, or hearing Jesus say over you, you are mine, you are my beloved. Every day is my wedding day with you. The Pharisees were relying on their work, not God's. Are you relying on what you do for God to have significance or on what Jesus has done for you? Why march in place when you can dance? Why fast on Super Bowl Sunday? Why go to a wedding and sit in a corner? Get out on the dance floor. You want to march in place or party? You want to march or dance? I want to party. I want to dance. I want to enjoy the Lord, which is really what our bulletin is all about here. On the front of your bulletin, we're about making disciple, making disciples. We exist to ignite a passion in every person, to glorify in what? Enjoy God everywhere we go and in everything that we do. Enjoy him as the patriots lose. I told you Jesus was good. Not that we ignore sin. Not that we ignore suffering. Please hear me. Not that we ignore sin. Not that we ignore suffering. But Christianity is not all about eating liver and drinking prune juice. If you look at some people, their idea of a disciple is eating liver and drinking prune juice. No. Jesus is telling us here, we are a party people. We are a laughing people. We are a dancing people. The Pharisees were all about religion. And religion says, I have it all together and no one else does. Religion makes you judgmental. Religion puffs you up and tears other people down. Religion tattletales. Religion makes you a bad kid. And grace comes along and changes all of that. Jesus is telling us here that he is the new patch, the new wine. He is not compatible with religion. Jesus is telling us here that we need to clear our medicine cabinets of religion pills Flush them down the toilet. That's what Robert Capon actually said. He said, I think good preachers should be like bad kids. They ought to be naughty enough to tiptoe up on dozing congregations, steal their bottles of religion pills, and flush them all down the drain. The church, by and large, has drugged itself into thinking that proper human behavior is the key to its relationship with God. What preachers need to do is force it to go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross and then be brave enough to stick around while the congregation goes through the inevitable withdrawal symptoms. And we've done that the last, over the last six years, haven't we? We've watched people go through withdrawal symptoms because they were addicted to religion. But those who have hung around say, I want Jesus, I want the word of the cross. Let's flush our religion pills down the toilet and go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross. Let's focus on our Savior and not on our behavior. And let's listen to his voice. Hear his audible voice to you today right now. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you, you're a good God. We don't believe it so many times, but you are good and merciful and kind. And and you laugh and dance and enjoy your creation. And you loved us so much you sent your son to do everything we couldn't do, to be perfect, so that we could know you and enjoy you forever. Help us to be about that as a church. Not denying sin, not denying suffering, not denying the need of thousands of people, groups who've never heard the gospel, but embracing that. Realizing it is a war, but also, Father, being able to dance, laugh, and sing and rejoice in your goodness to us so that the watching world would look and say, I want to be with those people. They know how to have fun. They're free, and that's what we want to be, Father. Make us free, in Jesus' name, amen.